Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This was almost the perfect murder. Introducing a new podcast from Court TV. They were killed by their own children. Murder and the Menendez brothers. I just started firing. What was in front of you? My parents. Oh, that is on tape. <laughs> Murder and the Menendez brothers, a Court TV mystery. Available now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. You must remember this is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Start learning about topics ranging from history to science and many more. Try it for free by visiting thegreatcoursesplus.com slash remember. And by Blue Apron, who make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Get two meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash remember. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. And like an epidemic, a quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting this nation. If I had my way about it, they'd all be sent back to Russia. Back to Russia. Today, we're going to return to the story of Lena Horn the first black woman to be signed to a long-term movie studio contract, which promised to promote her as a glamour girl. In our last episode on Lena, we discussed the singer-slash-actress's time at MGM, her work in movies like Stormy Weather and Cabin in the Sky, and her experiences as a traveling performer and pinup idol during World War II. Horn's last years at MGM overlapped with the first HUAC hearings. But as we've seen in previous episodes in this series, the red panic didn't really overwhelm the town until after the Hollywood Ten exhausted their appeals and went to jail in 1950. That same year, Lena Horne got caught up in the anti-communist insanity. Horne was not a communist, 
What she was, was an outspoken proponent of equal rights, who from the beginning of her career had associated with leftists, and what she would eventually be forced to derisively refer to as agitators. One of those agitators, the key agitator as far as this story goes, was Paul Robeson. Robeson was a singer and actor who was on the verge of major movie stardom in the mid-1930s. But as his political consciousness increased, he lost his willingness to play along with what was required for an African-American performer who wanted to get along in movies. Robeson was a mentor to Lena Horne, and they were friends. But once the Red Panic began to heat up, that friendship became problematic for Lena. And like so many others, she was forced to choose between her career and her friendships. Join us, won't you, for the Blacklist story of Lena Horn and Paul Robeson. Like so many of you, I love to learn new things. That's why I'm excited about the new Great Courses Plus video learning service. You can learn about anything and everything with unlimited access to the Great Courses Plus lecture series on hundreds of topics, taught by top professors. The time is nigh to try the Great Courses Plus, so they're giving my listeners a special chance to watch their popular course, Understanding the Inventions that Changed the World, and hundreds of other courses, absolutely free. Understanding the Inventions that Changed the World is a fascinating exploration of history and innovation, chronicling inventions that shape our lives today. There's a lecture on motion pictures, and maybe more relevant to our current Blacklist series, there's another lecture on the development of nuclear weapons and power. This course takes you all the way through the initial development of nuclear power up to the Fukushima nuclear disaster in 2011, discussing the conflict between the fear of the destructive power of nuclear weapons and the desire for cheap and efficient nuclear power. With The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. And just for a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering my listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Understanding the Inventions that Changed the World, a $320 value, for free for one month. So start watching today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash remember. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash remember. As we learned in last week's episode, Lena Horne came from a line of intellectuals and activists on her mother's side. Her grandmother, Cora Calhoun Horne, was a suffragette and early member of the NAACP who advocated that African Americans become self-reliant through self-improvement. But high ideals didn't pay the bills once Lena's father skipped town. So as a teenager, Horne was groomed to work as a showgirl. Horne's dues-paying years in New York nightclubs would mark her in many ways. But back in the early 1930s, when she first joined the cast performing nightly at the Cotton Club, she couldn't foresee that one relationship that she'd made during those years would eventually put her in a position of having to beg conservative columnists, the head of a Hollywood union, and Ed Sullivan for their help in convincing Hollywood that she wasn't a communist. To understand how and why that happened, we have to look at how Horne's life and family history 
intersected with the history of another family of Black East Coast intellectuals, the Robesons. Paul Robeson was born in 1898 in Princeton, New Jersey. His father, a runaway slave, had risen to become the pastor of the Witherspoon Street Presbyterian Church, an African-American church that was and is a local institution. Paul was the youngest of the pastor's seven children. The trouble started when Paul was two. His older brother, Bill, applied to Princeton University and was flatly rejected. It would become part of Robeson family lore that the future American president, Woodrow Wilson, who two years later would be appointed to the position of president of the university, but was already a powerful member of the faculty, had personally rejected Bill, even after his father met with Wilson to argue the family's case. The pastor may have thought he could have appealed to Wilson based on their common faith of Presbyterianism. But Wilson couldn't see what he and the Robesons had in common. He could only see their difference in skin color. Shortly thereafter, the pastor was deposed from his position at Witherspoon Street, and the Robesons believed that this was also due to Wilson's influence. It's unclear whether or not Wilson actually had all of the power that the Robesons ascribed to him, but when Pastor Robeson lost his congregation, he lost his ability to support his family, and his family forever blamed Woodrow Wilson for making that happen. All of this happened when Paul was a toddler. Fifteen years later, Woodrow Wilson was president of the United States, and Paul Robeson had grown into a highly intelligent but angry young man. Lacking direction, he started getting into trouble. Witnessing how he was throwing his potential away, Cora Horn took an interest in Robeson. With her help and encouragement, he applied for a scholarship at Rutgers and got it. After Rutgers, Robeson played football in the NFL, graduated from Columbia's law school, and then made his film debut at age 25 in Oscar Micheaux's silent film, Body and Soul. Robeson then had success on the Broadway and London stages. In 1934, at the invitation of the great filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein, Robeson visited Moscow. What he saw there convinced him that the Soviets had managed to produce a race-blind society and he eventually sent his young son, Paul Jr., to school in Moscow, where he was classmates with Stalin's daughter, Svetlana. After appearing in the London stage production of Showboat, Robeson was cast in the 1936 Hollywood film version. In Showboat, Robeson sang the song, Old Man River, and it would become his signature. There's an old man called Mississippi, that's the old man that I'd like to be. What does he care if the world's got troubles? What does he care if the land ain't free? Old Man River, that old man river, he must know something, but don't say nothing. He just keeps rolling, he keeps on After 1938, Robeson began singing a new version of the song. He altered the lyrics to turn this subservient lament into an anthem of survival and continued fight 
in the face of adversity. There's an old man called a Mississippi. That's the old man I don't like to be. What does he care if the world's got troubles? What does he care if the land ain't free? Old Man River, that old man river, he must know something, but don't say nothing. He just keeps rolling. He keeps on rolling along. Showboat would be Robeson's shining Hollywood moment, but it was a non-Hollywood film that changed Robeson's life. While in London, Robeson was cast as a noble Nigerian leader in the Alexander Korda film, Sanders of the River. Robeson had been studying African languages and cultures at the time, and he believed that the film was going to be respectful and maybe even educational. But when he was called back for audio dubbing after the film had been edited, Robeson realized that Corda had actually made a film that was something of a love letter to white colonialism. Robeson disowned the movie, and then he began consciously choosing projects that would allow him to fuse his performance talents with his political and social ideals. Or at least, he sought opportunities to perform that wouldn't betray those ideals. As far as those ideals led him to embrace Russia and the Soviet experiment, Robeson was initially supported by the black media. One newspaper editorial on Robeson's decision to send his son to school in Moscow pointed out that the Soviet Union might have a dictator, but it did not have a KKK. Robeson would distance himself from the Soviets after Russia pacted with Nazi Germany in 1939, but he continued to support and work with leftist organizations stateside. Cut to 1941. 23-year-old Lena Horn has joined the nightly show at Cafe Society, a Manhattan nightclub founded on socialistic principles by Barney Josephson. It was the only night spot in town where white and black patrons mixed freely. This made everything that happened at Cafe Society implicitly political, even when the acts were nowhere near as politically charged as Billie Holiday's debut performance of Strange Fruit, which took place at the club in 1939. To have been associated with Cafe Society would later be seen as a surefire marker of communist allegiance or sympathy. The FBI took much interest in the place, and in particular, owner Josephson's brother, Leon, who would eventually be called by HUAC and would go to jail for refusing to answer the committee's questions. The FBI was convinced that the club was essentially laundering money for the Communist Party, which they may or may not have been, but either way, the club was the locus of something potentially more subversive. It showed a then-utopian model of what it would be like to live in a society in which status, access, and opportunity were not determined by skin color. But even in this supportive environment, in 1941, Lena Horne was still struggling. She felt she was being attacked from both sides. White people didn't accept her because she was black, and black people accused her of trying to pass as white. She felt defeated and not certain she could press on. 
When Paul Robeson visited her backstage after a show one night, Horn let all of her anxieties spill. At this time, Robeson was a major star, probably the most respected African-American in the entertainment industry. He took Lena under his wing, in part because her grandmother had made such a big impact on him. He called Cora the fiery little woman who chased me off the street corners of Harlem, and he efforted to help Lena understand that she could and should carry on her grandmother's legacy through using her own gift of performance talent. Years later, Lena credited Paul with giving her a fundamental education. Paul taught me about being proud because I was Negro. And he sat down for hours and he told me about Negro people and what, you know, I've read it in some books and never learned it in school. They don't teach it in history books. And he didn't talk to me as a symbol of a pretty Negro chick singing in a a club. He talked to me about my heritage. And that's why I always loved him. Amongst Robeson's recommendations were that Lena become involved with a number of causes, from innocuous things like an anti-tuberculosis campaign in Harlem to more politically dangerous causes, like the anti-colonialist Council on African Affairs. This kind of activism was basically par for the course in the demi-monde of cafe society, and it wouldn't have been unusual in the wider New York theater world either. But in 1942, Lena Horne signed her contract with MGM, thus instantly becoming the highest-profile Black performer in Hollywood. Even more than before, her actions would be monitored by both Blacks and Whites. She was supposed to embody, at all times, a credit to her race. Whatever that meant, and it likely meant different things to different people. In general, the white people Lena worked for hoped that she wouldn't draw attention to the fact that she was Black, while still appealing to Black audiences. But those Black audiences, or at least the segment of the African-American community represented by the Black press, wanted Lena to symbolize and vocalize the real struggles and experiences that Black people faced in the 1940s. In terms of negotiating this impossible situation, Lena was pushed to become more political by her experiences during World War II, which we talked about in last week's episode. After the war, she joined many Hollywood stars in supporting Henry Wallace, the progressive presidential candidate who was advocating for real policy change to combat racism, including full voting rights for blacks and anti-lynching legislation. Lena and Robeson spoke at rallies hosted by the Progressive Citizens of America, at which they excoriated the double standards that were pervasive in American life. But by 1948, Horn had broken ties with the PCA and Wallace. It was clear to her that communists were running the Wallace campaign, and she wasn't there for that. Plus, by desegregating the military, Harry Truman had taken a step in the right direction in Lena's mind. She thus became a Truman supporter, and her path diverged from Robeson's for the first time. About a year later, Robeson made what many felt was a fatal mistake. At the World Peace Congress in Paris, an event opposing nuclear warfare, Robeson gave a speech damning the United States' militant, imperialistic foreign policy and implying that black Americans would not support their homeland in a war against Russia. 
The United States had, quote, oppressed us for generations, Robeson said. The Russians, he added, in one generation has raised our people to the full dignity of mankind. The black intelligentsia had been able to contextualize Robeson's views on Russia in the 1930s, but much had changed by 1949. Now, the other powerful voices in the black community moved immediately to distance themselves from Robeson's comments. Newspapers reporting Robeson's speech also carried a statement from Walter White of the NAACP, who insisted that Robeson had not been speaking for, quote, the overwhelming majority of the 14 million Negro Americans. Negroes are Americans. It's not hard to see why the African-American community was pissed off. The primary goal of their fight for the past few decades had been to prove to white America that all Americans were Americans, with equal rights under the law and social contracts of the land. And here was Robeson, essentially confirming the white racist's worst nightmare, that the black community constituted an internal enemy aligned with the greatest external nemesis of the nation. Meanwhile, Lena's MGM contract was close to running out, and she found out that another studio was planning on making a film about a light-skinned black woman. We talked about this briefly in our last episode, but this is how Lena told the story of Pinky in her one-woman show in 1981. And I read in the paper, 20th Century Fox gonna make a movie called Pinky. Now that's another little something we used to call somebody who was passing for the other color. So far they had signed one person to contract to play in this movie, the role of Pinky's grandmother. And for that part, they took our great lady star, Miss Ethel Waters. Well, I read this in the paper and I said, Lena, you are going to be Pinky. There is no way they can deny you this part. I mean, genetically speaking, I have a built-in grandmama right there with Miss Waters being a sister, you understand? And by now, me and Ava are tight buddies just like this. So I'll borrow her light makeup to do my thing while she got my dark makeup doing my thing. Well, I pack up all my clothes. And I hop on the super cheap. Then you in the red and white sweater, you so young, you don't know. But I'm going to tell you, the super chief was a train. <laughs> a big, long silver train. I ain't talking about no Amtrak, honey. Oh, it was gorgeous. Took 82 days to get across the country. <laughs> I helped that engineer drive that train, and I ran up the steps at MGM. I said, you call 20th Century Fox. I'm back here, and I'm going to be panking. They said, no, they already cast that part with Jeannie Crane. Pretty little brown-haired, blue-eyed child. So I want to tell you, I felt bad for a while. Not 12 years. Yeah, I got over it. I got over it. I knew life was going to go on. And history was going to try to play catch-up. I'd wind up here sweating like a dog all over Jimmy Needlander's stage, acting like a damn fool, enjoying every minute of it and loving it all. In the clip we just heard... Lena talks about trading makeup with Ava Gardner, who was MGM's choice to star in their remake of Showboat, the musical that had made Robeson a star. As we detailed in our last episode, Horn passionately wanted the role of Julie, a mixed-race woman who passes as white. Before they cast Gardner in that part, 
The studio was shaping it for Judy Garland, who in 1950 was extremely troubled and hanging on at MGM by a thread. As late as the summer of 1950, Lena held out hope that Garland might be fired and that the part might become hers. Lena spent that summer touring Europe, singing in all the major cities and openly traveling with her husband, the Jewish composer Lenny Hayton. Lena and Lenny had been married since 1947, but they had kept the marriage secret because of the stigma against interracial marriage. The Hollywood Production Code still forbid depiction of miscegenation in Hollywood movies, which is one of the reasons why MGM never seriously considered casting Lena in Showboat. But in 1950, the couple began to become afraid that they would be outed. And in fact, the African-American newspaper, the Los Angeles Sentinel, had begun referring to Lenny as Lena's hubby. And so in June, while they were in Paris, they issued a statement admitting that they had been married for three years. That same day saw the publication of Red Channels, the brochure which claimed to expose the source of communist influence in radio and television. Lena Horne was one of the 151 performers named within Red Channels as a communist sympathizer. Most of these performers were blacklisted. Like Judy Holliday, Lena Horne had a record of supporting leftist causes and performing at benefits for organizations that were not considered problematic during the war years, but which now were considered to be or have been communist fronts. And of course, Lena's past as a performer at Cafe Society was a red mark on her record. Most of the evidence compiled against her in Red Channels consisted of speeches she had given to organizations in support of civil rights. We know that many anti-communists were also antagonistic toward the civil rights movement, but in Lena's case, her activism for African-American equality had no element of communism. Two full years before the release of Red Channels, Lena had ceased her support of Henry Wallace because she didn't want to be in league with communists. So why wasn't that enough to clear her of suspicion? For one thing, she had announced her unwillingness to cooperate with HUAC, to a HUAC ally's face. After a concert in Hollywood, a black man named Alvin William Stokes appeared in Lena's dressing room. Stokes told Lena that he was an investigator working for HUAC, and he asked her to commit to coming before HUAC to denounce Robeson's statement from the Paris conference. Lena, who was shocked that a black man would be working for HUAC, told Stokes that she would never appear before the committee because it was chaired by Georgia Congressman John Wood, a known defender of the KKK. All of these were problems, but the real problem was Lena's connection to Robeson, a connection which was difficult to downplay after the release in 1950 of Horn's first autobiography. In person, Lena Horn, as told to Helen Arstein and Carlton Moss, had been written by the two ghostwriters named in the title. And according to Lena, the manuscript had been submitted to the publisher by Moss while she was in Europe and without her approval. Nothing in the book about Lena's relationship to Robeson was inaccurate, but it was an inopportune time to be praising as one's political mentor a man who was widely seen as the nexus of dangerous black activism and communism. 
And since this was published in a book purporting to be her autobiography, Lena could hardly claim she had been misquoted. MGM didn't blacklist Lena Horne. They asked her to write a letter to the Screen Actors Guild expressing ignorance of the Communist Association of Friends like Robeson and the causes she had supported, which she did. But the studio did not cast her in Showboat, and though this had nothing to do with the blacklist that was affecting so many other performers, it made Lena realize that she was on a special blacklist of her own. Her studio was finally making a movie about a light-skinned black woman, just like her, and they never seriously considered giving her the part. Though Horn had tentatively agreed to extend her contract with MGM, when they refused to cast her in Showboat, she refused to remain tied to the studio. The Blacklist had no real impact on the nightclub gigs that were Lena's bread and butter, and at first, her mention in Red Channels did not prevent her from making appearances on television. That is, not until the fall of 1951, when CBS announced they had booked Horn on the Talk of the Town, hosted by Ed Sullivan. Right-wing columnists immediately denounced this decision, and they weren't alone. Sullivan had heard stories that Lena was a commie, and he was skeptical about whether or not he wanted her on his show. But after meeting with Horn, Sullivan supported having her sing on the show. After the program aired, the media firestorm did not end. Columnist Jack O'Brien threatened to boycott any network that dared to book Lena going forward. She realized that she was going to have to do what so many people were having to do, find a way to clear her name. The process began with a meeting between Lena and political columnist George Sikorsky, who wrote anti-commie and often implicitly racist editorials for the Hearst newspaper syndicate. Lena found Sikorsky to be surprisingly sympathetic. As she put it, he said he understood some of the pressures I must have had because he was once married to a Chinese girl. That kind of bullshit. But it wasn't enough to have Sikolsky on her side. It became apparent that the only way for a black performer to truly clear his or her name would be to speak out against Paul Robeson. And Lena did so in a statement that ran under her name in Ed Sullivan's newspaper column. It read, in part... No minority group in the country within the past 10 years has made the advances scored by the Negroes, and we would have made even greater advances if the communists didn't deliberately try to confuse the issue and stir agitation. Communism offers nothing to the Negro, and the United States offers everything. The main thing for Negroes to do is fight actively against the commies, not passively. That's what I intend to do from now on. Paul Robeson, for whom I once had great admiration, does not speak for the American Negro. It seems unlikely that Lena Horne wrote this statement herself. It had been delivered to Sullivan by Theodore Kirkpatrick, one of the authors of Red Channels, who Lena had also met with during the fall of 1951. Even if she didn't craft the words herself, Lena had allowed this statement to be published under her name. In later years, she would always credit Paul Robeson with sparking her political awakening. 
but when she believed her allegiance to Robeson was on the verge of killing her career, Lena allowed it to appear that she no longer held him and his ideas in quote-unquote admiration. And this didn't even fully work. Unable to find work in movies, and with murmurs in the air that advertisers were unhappy with the networks that still occasionally booked her on TV shows, Lena began to worry that she would soon be deemed completely unemployable. She reached out to Roy Brewer, the head of the union Yahtzee, who liked to see himself not as a witch hunter, but as a tool that performers wrongly accused of communist ties could use to clear their names. Brewer believed that the really insidious thing about communists was that they were able to use unsuspecting rubes to forward their agendas. After a 45-minute phone call, Brewer was apparently convinced that Lena had been one of those rubes, and he told her that he would support her. He wrote letters on her behalf to the heads of NBC and CBS, informing them that he had, quote, investigated this situation, and I am of the firm opinion that there should be no further question about her position in this matter. But there apparently continue to be further questions, many of them having to do with the ghostwriters of Lena's autobiography. Carlton Moss's literary agent had named his name before HUAC, and Arstein was now vocally supporting accused Soviet spies Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Lena found herself in 1953 forced to take a gig singing in Las Vegas, which was not yet the swinging Sin City of the Sinatra years. Lena thought it was a dump run by gangsters, and she wasn't wrong. But the Sands offered Lena $50,000 in cash, and unlike other black stars, Lena was allowed to actually stay in a hotel room at the hotel where she was the nightly attraction. Still, it wasn't MGM, and Lena still hoped to be able to repair her name in Hollywood. Brewer urged Lena to formally distance herself from Carlton Moss by putting her distaste for her sometime ghostwriter into writing. So one night after the show, Lena sat down in her Vegas dressing room and wrote Brewer a letter. In the letter, she recounted what she categorized as Moss's betrayal of her interests and accused both Moss and Robeson of taking advantage of her desire to promote black equality. Brewer forwarded the letter to a number of powerful people, including J. Edgar Hoover. And soon, Lena's TV bookings increased. Then, in 1957, she starred in a hit Broadway musical called Jamaica. Her career as a singer and live performer would continue unabated from there on out. But her movie career was never really resuscitated. Of course, as we discussed last week, she hadn't ever really had the movie career she hoped to have to begin with. She was off movie screens for almost all of the 1950s and 1960s, not landing a significant role until Death of a Gunfighter in 1969. While she was making that film, which was originally titled after the Richard Widmark character Patch, Lena talked about her hiatus from movies with Shirley Eder. Lena, did you, at that time, you were so young that maybe you didn't even think about did you resent the fact that you never had a word to say in those films? Were you smart enough to know? Well, as you know, uh, I 
think when I first saw you when I was beginning to write the book, Lena, and after it was finished, I said then that I resented it and, and realized quite logically that I wouldn't get any other parts at that time, and that's why I drifted in and went into cabaret business, because I had to make a living, you know. And uh, I didn't make myself too unhappy about being a movie star, because uh, there were limitations, tremendous limitations at that time. And uh, it's interesting to note that when I was asked to do this part, uh, it's sort of, I thought back 25 years ago when I went to MGM, they said, uh, well, now, you know, we're going to begin to use black people uh, in their usual way, instead of just as servants or funny shuffling comics. And I read in the Times article uh, the day that I said I would do Patch, that Mr. Lang, uh, who is president here at Universal, has said, we intend to use more and more black people now in the context of American life. And I feel Stay I've been living back. in a flashback. <laughs> Lena was right to suspect that a movie studio's promises about race were essentially empty. She would only make one more film after the death of a gunfighter. The Wiz, which came nine years later, had an all-black cast, and was directed by her daughter Gail's husband, Sidney Lumet. Though the exploitation era was just around the corner, it would still be a long time before major movie studios began casting black performers in the kinds of films about everyday life that Lena referred to. And obviously, even today, though actresses like Zoe Saldana and Naomi Harris have made their way into the ensemble casts of action blockbusters, Mainstream movies remain more segregated than integrated. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients taste better and are better for you, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. New recipes are created each week by Blue Apron's culinary team and are not repeated within a year. And you can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. This month, some of the recipes you could cook include Middle Eastern chicken with chickpea stew and pita croutons, pan-seared pork chops with two cheese mashed potatoes and sautéed spinach, and crispy cod and cabbage slaw tacos with papita, pineapple, and avocado salsa. That last one is very exciting for me because I'm currently living in a place where good tacos are hard to come by. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Check out this week's menu and get your two meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com remember. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash remember. Blue Apron, 
a better way to cook. As we discussed in last week's episode, Lena Horne would turn her lifetime of struggle against diversity and thwarted ambition into a triumph by funneling her personal stories into the one-woman show-stopping showcase, Lena Horne, The Lady and Her Music, which debuted in 1981. Though she'd discuss much of her journey through the course of the show, including her time at Cafe Society and her loss of the role in Showboat to Ava Gardner, her blacklist struggles didn't make it into her between-song dialogues. By then, Robeson was gone. His U.S. passport was revoked for a time, but he'd gotten it back by 1961, when he made a trip to the Soviet Union. On that visit, it was impossible for him to ignore the fallout of Stalin's murderous regime. Robeson attempted suicide while in Russia. He'd struggle with depression for the rest of his life, which ended in 1976. As times changed, Lena became increasingly emboldened to become the outspoken activist it seems like she always wanted to be. She was a key figure in the March on Washington, and as the years went by, she became more and more open about the racism she had encountered in Hollywood and elsewhere. And when it was safe to, she reestablished her connection to Robeson. In one interview Lena gave during the 1960s, after she had returned to the spotlight as a civil rights activist, in speaking of Robeson as an inspiration, she also acknowledged the political processes that had destroyed him. I find more and more uh, myself calling upon the things that Paul said to me because uh, it's as of now, except he is not our leader. We, we eat up our leaders, you know. We, we, history eats our leaders up, we eat them up, we drain them, and we throw them out because everything moves so fast. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was produced and narrated by Karina Longworth, that's me, it was written by me and Matthew Desum. This episode was edited by Sam Dingman. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. A really easy way to support the show and help other people find it is by subscribing on iTunes and rating and reviewing us there. The show is also available on a number of other podcast apps and websites, and now you can find the whole back catalog on Spotify. You can tweet at us at RememberThisPod, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Nobody knows the trouble I see.